Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. As I told you two weeks ago, our program today will be dedicated to a visit with three more folks connected with the March for Our Lives movement. And in particular, we've got two high school participants on today's guest list. But before we talk to those folks, I want you all to enter into our drawing for $25 or some of our fine Northern Spirit Radio merchandise as part of our Better Know Your Listener survey on the northernspiritradio.org website. Go there now and let us know who's tuning in and we'll enter you in our drawing. But for the next hour, we're going to be talking to people who have been galvanized and energized by the March for Our Lives movement. Folks who are concerned about the horrible carnage and senseless violence, which is endemic in our country. As usual, we want to emphasize those working on solutions and doing world healing and interested in full people, not just sound bites. So you'll learn the many ways each of them are doing good in the world and what gets them there. It's a special treat to have two high school seniors with us, but first we'll visit with Bonnie Knight, a local, for me, retired French high school teacher who was part of the March for Our Lives in the Twin Cities of Minnesota. Bonnie, I'm excited to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Thanks so much for having me. I got you on the line before we came on the air, and I realized that since you were a retired French teacher, the fact that we both speak French is one of the things that we'll have in common. You were also Peace Corps. Could you say a little bit about that? Because I think this maybe connects up with the motivation for being part of something like March for Our Lives. Sure. It was in the late 70s, kind of similar to your experience. I think we overlapped just by a year. And I had just come out of university and was looking for adventure and an opportunity to serve. So I signed up to go to Tunisia in North Africa, and I taught English there. And what led you to go in the Peace Corps? I mean, I was a math science major, so I had all kinds of corporate jobs looming ahead of me. And I said, no, I'd rather do something that was good for the world and much more interesting than being in corporate suit and tie. My experience was a little bit different. I grew up in a fairly affluent neighborhood in Southern California, had a degree in French, which wasn't very valuable, although I did have a teaching certificate. But teaching jobs were pretty hard to find at that point in California. They were pretty rare. But larger than that, I knew that I had led a pretty sheltered life, that I just needed more international experience, and I needed to do something for the world rather than stay home and not better myself and not better the world. So it was a sense of adventure and then kind of an understanding that I needed to do something bigger than myself and my life. And what motivated you to be part of the March for Our Lives? Similar, of course, things, but much deeper sense of outrage and a combination of outrage and optimism, I guess I would say. I was so uplifted by the young students and their motivations and Having been a teacher during Columbine, I felt that danger personally every time I went to school after Columbine, and I just really had a sense that I I believe in these kids in Florida and all over the country and right here in Eau Claire, and I want to support them a million percent. The march that you were part of was over in the Twin Cities instead of going down to Madison. Madison would have been a three-hour trajectory, and it's an hour and a half, hour and three quarters over to the Twin Cities. Do you have other connections to the cities that led you in that direction? 
Well, it was. I went with a friend. I was waffling all week, and I had been searching and searching for something in Eau Claire, and it was pretty clear that nothing was developing, and probably rightfully so because most of the major marches happened in capitals, so it made sense that it should be in a state capital. Until the day before, I was waffling as to which one I should go to, and then I heard about a group of women from Eau Claire who were going over to Minneapolis or to St. Paul, and I just decided that that made the most sense for me, and it was a really glorious trip because I went with a grandma, her daughter, and her granddaughter, and so it was really beautiful to see it through that three-generational lens, and One of my favorite aspects of it was that the 12-year-old granddaughter, it was freezing cold and it was windy and it was miserable. And this 12-year-old middle schooler was just, had a great day. She loved it. She loved every second of it, was all in and never complained. And at the end of it, thought it was a great day. Both you and I, given our ages, were a little bit after the crest of the activism of the 60s, I guess you'd say. Right. That, you know, the hippie activism, anti-war, even in the start of the women's movement, all these things, we're kind of late on the curve for that. Do you see this as maybe the possible awakening where the next cultural revolution happens? You've been able to observe this by being in high schools over the years, and maybe you've seen those hopes come and go. How does this look to you, and what was your impression of being in the March for Our Lives over in the Twin Cities of Minnesota? I think that it was a game changer in every single way. Not the march necessarily, but the movement that led up to it. I did a little protesting in college, and ironically, it was about gun issues. I was in California, and the University of California system made a rule that all college campus police officers should carry guns, and I was on a tiny town at a small university in Chico, California, very similar to the Eau Claire campus. The police officers on our campus did not want to carry guns, and, you know, we didn't have a crime rate at that in 1975 or whatever, and so... I joined a bunch of people that protested that. That was kind of my first serious involvement, and it's kind of ironic that full circle, 40-whatever years later, here I am again. And I, I look at this particular moment in history, and I definitely feel a shift, like a deep shift. I feel like young people look at the world, and I've heard this from some of my younger friends, They look at the world that we basically have left them, and they don't like it. I think that's what's driving this movement, and rightfully so. You know, you retired from being a French teacher how long ago? 2010. So the same time that you became Forensics Coach of the Year, I think, maybe? or. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and you know, I'm going to sit down and write something about this. Not today, because I've got so many things going on in my life right now, but forensics or speech and debate is honestly at the heart of this movement because when those Parkland kids popped out of that school and journalists grabbed onto them, the country was floored by how articulate and able to analyze what had happened in the context of the world around them while the rest of the country was flabbergasted by these young people, I and my fellow forensic coaching friends were not at all surprised because there is this little group of humans around the country, these forensics coaches that spend nights and days and weekends teaching kids how to stand up for themselves and how to organize their thoughts 
and how to articulate their beliefs. And not coincidentally, Parkland has a program where every single student in the Parkland area, every single student is required to take debate. And it starts in elementary school. And it's, I believe, I'm, I don't quote me on this, but it's one of the only districts in the country where a kid must take debate. And so out popped all these brilliant, articulate, reasoning young people who can hold their own with the Dana Leshes and the NRA and the right-wing politicians and journalists. And people are so shocked, but I am not. That's amazing. I hadn't known that at all. And I was in debate and forensics, as a matter of fact. Anyway, the point being, all of these students are gifted because they've been given the training, they've been given analytical thought, they've been given the ability to express themselves. Yes. You were doing that in terms of debate and forensics here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. I think you were at North High School. Yes. So do you have students there who are doing the same kind of thing on the spot here in Eau Claire? Well, yes, I do. I swear. I, were you prompted to ask me that question? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I'm just following the evidence. <laughs> in fact, in last night's election, one of my former forensic students, Melissa Jansen de Costante, became a county board member, and she attributed that to memories of student congress and how, when she was in high school, that made her get interested in politics, and she lived in Ecuador for a while and came home and decided to run for office. So she's one of Eau Claire's newest county board members, all because of forensics and because she's awesome. Along with Martha Neiman, who's the clerk of our Quaker meeting here, and now Jeremy Gregert is on the city council for Eau Claire. We've got a lot of wonderful changes going on in this city and county. And my husband is on the county board as of last night. So Joe made it too, huh? Yes. That's impressive. I've, of course, known of Joe's writing before. I'm so pleased that he got on. That's exciting. Yeah. So to come back to the whole events of March for Our Lives, again, on March 24th, you were in the Twin Cities, one of eighteen or 20,000 people there. What do you think that that march changed, or why was it important to be there? Well, I want to interject a little story about that march. You know, we went and we didn't know what to expect. And it turned out very serendipitously that Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School's hockey team had won the Florida State Hockey Tournament 11 days after the shooting. So therefore, they were invited to Minneapolis for the National Hockey Tournament, which happened to be the weekend of the march. So they sent five speakers to the march, a father, two hockey players, and two younger sisters who were 14. And each of them spoke, and the father was incredibly articulate. The two hockey players were incredibly articulate, and the two 14-year-old freshman girls were incredibly articulate but very emotional. And what I walked away from after hearing one of the girls say, I am 14 years old. I'm 14 years old. What I walked away from was just an incredibly renewed sense of determination to not stop fighting. And I think that everybody in the place felt that way too. Do you think that there's a particular connection between the results of the election, which we had here in Eau Claire or in Wisconsin, for that matter? Is there a connection between that and what's going on with the March for Our Lives? 
I mean, I do. I think that we've woken the sleeping bear of the youth vote, for one thing. I don't think the Me Too movement hurt too badly either. I think that's been an influence. We saw a remarkable number of women get elected last night. I personally ask myself if I got complacent during the Obama years, and I think that the absurdity of national politics right now has motivated people that were complacent before. And I think that when these kids in Florida came out of the chute, not weeping and not feeling sorry for themselves, but energized and ready to move the needle in this country, I think all of it combines. I mean, I'm really, really, really hoping that we're looking at a big blue wave nationwide, I hope. I think probably more important from my point of view is not so much that it's just a blue wave, which my politics does tend to lean in that direction. But what's really important from my point of view is that people are going to be engaged. They're going to think, they're going to analyze, and they're going to therefore say, how do we work together to make this world better? Mm -hmm. That's, of course, why I have you here. I mean, that's what I want to explore. I'm going to ask you a couple more questions, and then we're going to go on to our next guest. But one of the things is, I know that you've been traveling a fair amount to Haiti recently. What's that about? Oh, my peripatetic daughter got me involved in a, an adult education program in Haiti where we teach adults English and then we help them find jobs. There are 10,000 NGOs still in Haiti and every single one of them would love to hire Haitians who speak English. And someone in Haiti who speaks English earns 30 times more money on average than someone who doesn't. While there are just a ton of very valuable programs that send children to school and help abandoned children and medical care, all of which are essential, if you educate an adult and get him a job or her a job, then they can pay for the medical care and pay for their children's education. A program like that allows us to jumpstart breaking the cycle of poverty. So you've been going how long? Five and a half years. I go twice a year, so I just finished trip number 11. I started going five years ago. That's great. I understand you're, you've now clicked and you're now really understanding and manipulating in your brain the correct way, Creole. Yeah. So I think that you're up to three languages and you're going to have Italian by June or so. I speak five right now and I'm adding Italian. Well, that's quite amazing. And part of your work in Eau Claire when you're not traveling abroad, you know, is with volume one, which is normally considered like arts and music. Is that what you contribute to the magazine? No, I don't actually honestly contribute a lot to the magazine, although they're very kind and let me write whenever I'm around and have something that I want to write about. I work at the local store, so I kind of think of myself as an advocate for Eau Claire and my role in the store. People come in and they want to buy something that is local or locally made or evokes local, and I'm happy to help them. But also a lot of people wander in, tourists and they want to know, you know, where should I get dinner or where's a park nearby or where's the music happening tonight. And so I'm a big cheerleader for Eau Claire. That's my job. And I love, love, love it. And I love being a part of the downtown. And I love being kind of, you know, at the epicenter. I feel like Volume One's headquarters is sort of the epicenter of the creative economy movement in Eau Claire. And it's really exciting to be a part of it. And I think it actually has harnessed a fair amount of youth energy as well. 
definitely. The key players in Eau Claire right now that are funding all the really exciting programs are all under 40. Maybe a couple of them have just crossed the line of 40, but we're not looking at a bunch of 70-year-olds that are saving the town. We're looking at a bunch of young people who have wandered off and come back or never left and are pouring their energy into Eau Claire, and it's very impressive. It is impressive, and the energy that I've seen from the March for Our Lives, from the students from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas School, has been incredible. I'm going to go on to, to speak to one of the youth representatives from Eau Claire, from Memorial High School, in just a moment, but it's been so wonderful visiting with you, getting to know you. I'll have to stop by the local store to visit with you a little bit more. We can practice our French. Sure. And maybe you can teach my friend Eli some Creole along the way. That would be awesome. Thank you so much for being part of the march. Thank you for nurturing the lives of our young people, helping giving them a voice by your work, not only in French, but of course with the forensics and debate, all of the ways in which you've helped equip the next generation to take leadership from those of us who haven't been doing such a good job. Thank you so much. Thank you. Those were really, really kind words. I'm not sure I'm worthy of all of them, but I appreciate them greatly. And folks, we've been speaking with Bonnie Knight of Eau Claire, Wisconsin, working with Volume 1 now, former French teacher. She's worked with young people for years, and she was part of the March for Our Lives in St. Paul, Minnesota on March 24th. So many good things. I'm pretty sure I haven't heard the last of you. Thanks again so much, Bonnie. (laughs) Thank you very much. Bonnie Knight was our first stop today for Spirit in Action with folks who've been part of the March for Our Lives energy. We had three guests on two weeks ago, and we've got two more to go today, the remaining two being high school seniors, a group of people vastly energized by this movement. I do want to remind you to go to the NordenSpiritRadio.org website and take our listener survey. It would be a great help, and you'll even be entered into a drawing for prizes. But next up is a young woman, senior at Eau Claire's Memorial High School, who is active in oh so many ways, including having been part of the March for Our Lives gathering in Madison, Wisconsin. Zariah Whitaker joins me in person today. Zariah, I'm really pleased to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Yeah, I'm really happy to be here. You, Zariah, are in your senior year here at Memorial High School. What kind of involvement have you had in the school? What kind of clubs and activities? Well, I was in student council my sophomore and junior year. I uh, dabbled in uh, Young Democrats. I am the public relations officer for Amnesty International, which involves a lot of human rights activities, such as photo petitioning and letter writing. I'm also in Teen Literacy Initiative. (laughs) I'm in a a lot of clubs. I am really grateful to have a school where it's very easy to be involved and find your passions. That's something I've never heard of before, Teen Literacy Initiative. What is that? It sounds like something that's desperately needed, not only for teens, but for adults. I've seen such horrendous videos with lack of civic knowledge. Teen Literacy Initiative, like TLI for short, Basically, we have a couple of book sales throughout the year, and we bring authors into the school for students or community members to listen to. We also, like around the holiday season, we bring books to Bolton Refuge House and then also to the public library. And we really just want for students and people in the community, really, to just sort of find a love for reading or find that reading isn't always boring and that it's important to be able to read and to understand what you're reading. 
You're 17 years old and I'm 63. I thought that 17-year-olds weren't supposed to like to read books anymore. I got that wrong? Yeah, I really, really like reading. I like reading about mythology or quote-unquote self-help books. I know that a lot of my friends hate reading because a lot of them have actually never even stepped foot in the library. I don't know, like there's a negative connotation around reading, but I think that it's very important. Maybe you're taking the road less traveled is part of what we're hearing here. And part of the road that you've walked was to be part of the March for Our Lives. You not only participated in the event as it was held on March 24th in Madison, you did some extra walking about that. Could you talk about your involvement in the March for Our Lives in Madison, how that relates to what you're doing here at Memorial High School in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and what other steps you've walked? Yeah, for sure. So on March 24th, a couple of friends and I, we went down to Madison, Wisconsin, and we marched for our lives. And it was really, really profound. It was all ran by a lot of high school students, so our peers, and along with like some parent volunteers and community volunteers. But it was really great to see youth voices in the spotlight. It was just so impactful in a way that I wasn't really expecting, but that I was very grateful to take part in. And then after that, well, I guess before that first, my friend Violet and I, we organized the walkout at Memorial High School. That kind of led us then to go to the March for Our Lives. And then after that, we went to the 50 Miles More March, which is where we marched 50 miles. And we went from Madison to Janesville, and we stayed overnight in high school gymnasiums, and we had a lot of great parent volunteers. We really just continued the dialogue of sensible gun reform. There's a lot there to unpack. First of all, you mentioned your friend Violet, who's maybe a co-conspirator here at Memorial High School. Talk about the walkout that you did here from the school. This is, again, related to March for Our Lives and the whole call for gun reform. What happened here at Memorial High School? I think that was about a week and a half before March for Our Lives. Yeah, so on March 14th, we walked out for 17 minutes in tribute to the 17 lives lost in the Parkland shooting in Florida. They were happening all across the nation, and to know that we were taking part in something so much bigger than ourselves was really impactful alone. Basically, I commented on Facebook. I said, hey, are we doing something at Memorial? Because I saw this post that there would be walkouts happening. And a bunch of people commented, and we made a Facebook group chat. From there, like we really got a lot of different opinions from all across the school. Even though we weren't all from the same backgrounds or from the same political viewpoints, we all realized that we wanted to have safer schools and safer communities. So we all came together and we had the walkout. And so we marched from the Eagle at Memorial High School to our English wing and then back to door four, where we had 17 seconds of silence, again, in tribute to the 17 lives lost. But it was, again, like the whole 17 minutes as well was the whole walkout. And then at the end, we had 17 seconds. Was this kind of thing that you could have been kicked out of school or gotten a demerit or something because you participated in this? You're walking out of class and maybe you miss a really good one or maybe a test. Yeah, I know that my friend, she actually missed a test in one of her classes and we all got marked absent for the class because that's just school policy. But all of the teachers were so supportive and the administration, it was a little difficult at first, but 
we ended up coming to a conclusion that pleased us both. It would be unreasonable for them to take, you know, an action like suspension or expulsion simply because of the amount of like people that we had involved. Because we had 300 students walk out and we had 100 people from the community there supporting us. We had news outlets from Eau Claire. Just to know that we had all of those people supporting us, I just don't think that they would have been able to take that sort of action. And if they did, there definitely would have been repercussions. Were you able to keep silent for 17 seconds? As a Quaker, I always think 17 seconds is so pitifully small. I I like a good hour of silence as part of the Quaker meeting. Was the silence deep and how did it feel? Yeah, the silence was definitely silent. And I know that over at North High School, they actually had a full 17 minutes of silence. Everyone was so respectful and everyone really, either they bowed their heads, they closed their eyes or something along those lines. But they really, I think, internalized the message that we were speaking up and that uh, we're not going anywhere. And also just to really honor the lives that are lost and to realize that that's 17 too many and like one is too many. And I think that we're all sort of coming to that realization and the 17 seconds of silence really just put it in place. A second part of what you had referred to was the actual time in Madison as part of the March for Our Lives concentration of people there. I've spoken with people already who were part of what happened in the Twin Cities where they had some 18,000 people there. And I've also been speaking with people who were in the Washington, D.C. gathering where something like 800,000, some incredible number like that. Can you say something about your involvement in the Madison experience, you know, what you heard, felt there, and what the numbers were like? Well, I know that it was a lot of people. (laughs) Not sure the exact number, but it had to be, you know, in the thousands. It was amazing. I actually ran into my friend that goes to Memorial High School and we're good friends. And it was just so cool to be like, we're all here together. We all had signs and I was standing right behind this band that was playing It was just so amazing to be a part of something where everyone was just so excited to be there because it was so urgent and it was so important. And then my friends and I, like, we got up on the rotunda. We, like, looked down the street and we just saw thousands of people there. And as people clapped after each person spoke, it felt like just waves of of people just clapping and being in support. You know, we were taking part in history and... It was beautiful, honestly. The third component that you referred to, Zariah, was the walk 50 miles from Madison to Janesville, and Janesville being where the offices of Paul Ryan are, who's, of course, Speaker of the House of Representatives in Washington, D.C. What were you going there to do, say, and how many of you were doing that trip? Just say more about how that trip was for you. It was amazing, to put it short. Basically, there were around 40 students there, and my friend Violet and I that I've been referring to, a fellow senior at Memorial High School, she and I both participated. A lot of the other students were from Shorewood or Milwaukee, sort of the southeast region of Wisconsin. We were marching for sensible gun reform. We got a ton of support from our Facebook and our Instagram, and every night we would read these amazing comments how we had support from California or New York or Texas or Montana, and people from all across the nation were in support. Basically, we were just marching 12 to 18 miles a day. I know I personally got sunburnt. I rolled my ankle. But we were there, and we were marching for a purpose, and we weren't going to stop. 
we were marching because we had the privilege to march. Whereas a lot of gun violence victims, they don't have the privilege to march. So we were marching not only for the safety of our schools and communities, but also for all of the lives lost. And so future lives don't have to be taken. Unfortunately, I've seen national commentators, sometimes politicians, sometimes media folks, who've been putting down high schoolers saying that your input is not worth very much. One person saying, you know, why don't you go do something valuable, you know, go learn CPR so that you can be helpful instead of asking for government to do what it should be doing. What's your perspective on the role of young adults like yourself, or I, I guess you're, maybe you're not quite an adult by a couple months, but you're just about to graduate from high school. How valuable is your voice? How valuable is your input? Why should folks be listening to you? A quote that I've been hearing pretty frequently is that we are 25% of the population, but we are 100% the future. That really just motivates me and inspires me because, you know, we are the future. The youth are the future. I really think that it's crucial that people listen to us because, I mean, why wouldn't they? You know, it's like we have valuable input and we are, again, human beings and we have parents and we have, you know, people in the community that we know and we have teachers that we influence and we are all about to be adults. I'm about to be an adult in like 14 days. I know that my friends, they got out and they voted yesterday, and I was so unbelievably proud of them when they posted their selfies with the I Voted sticker. I know that we are making an impact because we're all playing the long game and we're here to create change, and we're starting now. We're starting now when we're young, and we're going to continue to listen to the youth even as we age, and I think that it's important that the people who are a little bit older and maybe a little bit wiser still listen to us because we do have voices that are meaningful. There's something else that happened here in Eau Claire just a couple days after the March for Our Lives back on March 24th, and that was that there were arrests related to four young people who were evidently cooking up mischief here. Could you say something about that and what the student reaction was? Yeah, I know that a lot of my friends were very, very scared and that a lot of them didn't come to school on Monday because there was another school shooting threat. Earlier in the year, we also had a bomb threat where we all had to be transported to McPhee or go home. And it's scary, you know, and no one should be afraid for their life when we're here at school because we're here to learn and not to fear for our lives. I know that as I was marching 50 miles from Madison to Janesville, I got comments on Instagram posts and on Facebook posts and people were like, thank you so much for marching for me, for my brothers, for my family. They were just so proud of me. And when I returned, people were just giving me hugs like they were crying. They were just so thankful because, you know, I was not only my own voice, but I was the voice of my community, I really felt like. And it was it was really scary knowing that that happens, that we were fortunate enough to not have it be a reality and that it got caught in its tracks. But for a lot of schools and a lot of people, that isn't the case. And that's really why we're speaking up, because that should never be the case. I also want to talk Zariah, and we are speaking, folks, to Zariah Whitaker here. Uh, she's a senior at Memorial High School in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, one of the many, many, many high school people so eloquent, so powerful, so determined to make a difference in this world. 
I wanted to ask you what got you, Zariah, ready to do this. There are certainly a lot of your classmates who are not taking leadership like you and Violet have and not walking the 50 miles, even if they are concerned. What has enabled you to be able to prepare this witness and what's motivated you to actually step forward and put your life and your feet on the line? Well, I have a very supportive community. Living in Eau Claire, it's definitely enabled me to voice my opinions in a very safe environment. I go to Unity Christ Center here in Eau Claire. All of the members there and the past reverend, Sandra McKinney, she really had a huge impact on my life and how I live my truth, I make a difference. That's one of the principles. I just think that between her and my grandma, And the teachers that I've had, especially my English teachers, because I love to write and I've always wrote about what I believe in, they've always listened to me. They've always given me a space where I can speak my truth. I really think that believing in myself and having people that believe in me has enabled me to speak not only for myself, but to also, you know, want to speak for others in my community that may be afraid or that may, you know, have some reservations because they don't feel qualified. But I'm a voice that matters, and so therefore, I don't want to sound cocky, but I feel qualified. You know, I feel like I want to feel safe, and I know that my friends and my family want to feel safe, and so that qualifies me. Side note, I don't think you know this actually, Soraya, but Sandy McKinney is on the board of directors for Northern Spirit Radio, and she's nurtured this work and supported it. So one of the reasons I'm able to interview you is because Sandy has been one of the forces uh, in so many good ways in this community. And uh, it's part of the outpouring of good energy from Unity Christ Center, where you attend church. So I want to explore a little bit further. You mentioned your grandmother. You didn't mention your parents. And what about your grandmother is particularly important in terms of inspiring you? Well, my grandma, actually, a couple of summers ago, uh, she taught me the word discernment. We had a really, really long talk about the word discernment. It's to look at something without judgment, but to sort of just observe it and to really just go into a heart space with the topic at hand and to come at it from a place without ego and to then, you know, unravel the situation. I don't know. She just has been a very big influence in my life. She is very eloquent, as is my father and mother, (laughs) but uh, she just sort of has an essence about her that really makes me feel empowered. And again, she listens, a thing that I really have to work on as a teenager. And I don't really see her all the time. So I think that whenever I am with her, those moments are all the more precious. And so I really just take them. Discernment is a powerful word. It's one that's very common in the Quaker world. And Parker Palmer, amongst others, has been people who've instructed much of the world in it. We have what we call clearness committees that help people explore where they're led and and where it should be going. It looks like it's worked well that your grandmother and other people at Unity have introduced you to this. Where do you go from here? What is your leading? Where are you going? I mean, you're graduating high school. I assume there might be something like college or some other, maybe an interim year somewhere. Where are you going and what witness will you be carrying forward? Oh, golly. Great question. (laughs) I intend on taking a gap year. Actually, with my friend Violet, she works at an international Girl Scout camp, so she knows people from all over. And so we're going to be doing some traveling next year. And I'm going to work on my writing. I want to do some volunteer work, 
I mean, it sounds bad when someone's coming out of high school and they're like, I don't know what I'm going to do. But I really believe, as cliche as this sounds, that the universe really does have a plan for me. And I know that I want to go to college eventually. But I also just want to take some time for myself and really just look within and really not saying that I have to find myself outside of myself, so somewhere else. But I want to, again, cliche, see the world and I want to be able to see myself. I'm really looking forward to it. And I know that I have a ton of people that will support me in whatever I do. I know that I'm going to continue to make a difference no matter where I am and no matter who I continue to evolve into. I wish you totally the best in all of that. You've certainly done a lot of service already for a person who is still 14, 11 days, whatever, away from from 18 years old. It's already an impressive resume. uh, We haven't even spoken about Women's March Wisconsin. We did mention, not talk much about your work with Amnesty International, your the articles that you have been writing in Student Council, Young Dems, Teen Literacy Initiative, so many things that you've been part of even before the Walk for Our Lives. And I'm thankful for all of it, and I'm thankful that you joined me here today for Spirit in Action. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, and I'm very grateful. Thank you again. Again, folks, we've been speaking with Soraya Whitaker, a senior at Memorial High School in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, active in so many areas, as you just heard. And I'm so thankful that we have young people like her to inspire old farts like me to make a difference in the world and to renew our strength. I think there's a wave of better things coming for the world because of people like Zariah. And Zariah is the second of three guests today. And before we talk to another high school student, this one from the East Coast, I'll remind you that you're listening to Spirit in Action and to find us on northernspiritradio.org. Closing in on 13 years of programming, all available on the website. Lots of links and other information, including the stations across the USA that carry our programs. Leave a comment when you visit northernspiritradio.org. And right now, we'd love it if you'd answer our listener survey. And that will get you entered in our drawing for your choice of $25 or some great NSR merchandise. But do leave a comment and consider also clicking on our donate button to make more days, months, and years of this programming possible. We can't do it without you. Top priority, however, is to keep your local community radio stations running strong. There are some 33 stations carrying Northern Spirit Radio programming nationwide, and that's an invaluable resource that you can value with your donation of time and money. Please support them. Now, back to today's third and final March for Our Lives guest, Thomas Finneger, a senior at Athelton High School in Columbia, Maryland, who was part of the 800,000-strong presence in Washington, D.C. Thomas, thank you so much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Yeah, absolutely. Of course. I'm excited. Did you just get out of high school? Did you just finish for the day? I just finished for the day. I finished with a, a play rehearsal that I've been doing, yeah. What are you into in school? What's your direction? Where are you going? So I'm really interested in theater and entertainment. That's a huge part of my life. It's what I spend the majority of my time doing. That's certainly true. And that's a huge part of what motivates me in my life. And it's a big part of what I'm going to do in college, hopefully. So let's talk about what got you involved in the March for Our Lives. I think you were there in Washington, D.C., which I guess isn't very far away for you, on March 24th, part of the 800,000 or so people there. Was that just, you know, you and your closest friends, the 800,000? <laughs> 
I was going to go on a bus, actually, from Howard County to the march uh, with a bunch of my friends. But actually, I was sick that day, so I slept in a little bit and went with my father on the metro. And we met at FCNL, the Friends Committee on National Legislation, and we saw a bunch of different people speak about the March for Our Lives. And then I actually got a chance to go to Pennsylvania Avenue near the museum and watch their presentation and everything. Did you carry a sign with you? I'm just kind of curious what a silent Quaker carries as their sign in a public presentation. I didn't carry a sign with me, mostly because well, I, I'll be honest, mostly because I didn't make a sign. <laughs> but I think that <laughs> I think that part of the reason that I didn't carry a sign is because a lot of the messages that were being shared with the signs are ones that I agreed with, and I felt that those were thoroughly covered, <laughs> and I didn't make a sign. And you watched the presentations, the big ones that we've seen on YouTube and so on. Emma Gonzalez, I believe, was the last one. Were you impressed by her six minutes and 20 seconds of silence? I'm really interested in public speaking as a career, as, as an interest of mine. I think that there's something to be said for silence as part of public speaking. It was one of the most powerful things I've ever seen. I'll be honest, I cried a lot. It was close to, and this is going to sound funny, but closest to the most beautiful speech I've ever seen. And there weren't really that many words, you know, at all. Just thinking about it now, it's, it's, it was really one of the most powerful things I've seen. One of the videos I also saw of folks speaking there was, I believe she was 11 years old, and she just made me feel so inferior. At 11 years old, I couldn't even pick my nose very well, and she's ending up <laughs> speaking to hundreds of thousands of people. Do you know the one I'm referring to? I do, yeah, and I, I had a similar experience of asking myself, where was I at 11? And it certainly wasn't there. <laughs> So you're involved in this for some reason. Obviously, you're just about to leave high school. So now some people might say, well, I've got mine, Jack. I got out of high school without getting shot. Why are you concerned about high school? There's two reasons, I'll be honest. Uh, one is personal and one is, is political. We'll start with the political reason, that is, that guns aren't something that should be played with in any fashion. I think that's something that most people would agree with, and I'm kind of toning down <laughs> what I believe, I, I guess, to fit with what I think everyone could follow. I don't think that guns should be owned for fun. I really don't. I, they should be owned because one needs them, and I think that very few people need guns at all in the United States right now. The personal reason is because my little brother is actually a uh, freshman in high school right now. And uh, while I'm leaving high school, he's starting high school. He's joining that group of people that are in a lot of danger. And that's a huge reason for why I think it's still a very important subject to me, because I can't imagine losing him, you know? And what are your ideas about what needs to be done about guns? And I assume this is coming from your experience as a high schooler, but also as a Quaker, I imagine that is going to influence your ideas to some degree. Yeah. So as a Quaker, I follow the peace testimony. I count myself a pacifist. And I think that the use of a gun is almost inherently violent. And i got to be honest, I don't know a huge amount about guns, so that might be incorrect. But when you use a gun, you're shooting. And that's to damage, to hurt something inanimate or animate. And that's not something I can get behind. As a high schooler, I can't explain to you the fear that comes when I think about that object or that person who's being hurt by a gun being myself or my friends. And as a Quaker, something pains me about the idea of hurting for a sport or for fun. What are your co-students? You go to Atholton High School in Columbia, Maryland. 
Are your views representative, in the middle, at the extreme? How do they fit into the school body? I count it as a huge blessing as a, a public high schooler to be in a very politically diverse group, even for Columbia, Maryland, which I don't know if you know is a relatively liberal place. I think that I'm surrounded by a lot of people who have a lot of different ideas. Certainly the ideas that I share with people are in the majority, I would say, but by no means are they the total ideas of the people in my high school. There's both the Young Democrats Club and what they call a Young Americans for Freedom Club, basically a Young Republicans Club. And they held debates all the time about different subjects. They actually held one about gun control and gun violence recently. And if you were speaking to someone who's, shall we say, on the opposite side of the fence, what would be the points that you would make and that you'd expect to hear from them? And that I'm wondering if you can actually have a good dialogue with some diversity of thought. Sure. I've been in a lot of conversations about gun violence. And usually the points that are brought up on from the other side is that everyone has the right to a gun in the Constitution. Of course, the, I guess you could call it a counterpoint, is the Constitution, while it's massively historically important, isn't necessarily going to follow culture, every single second of culture in the United States. And the Constitution can be changed. Uh, I think at this point, every single American has the right to a gun, but I don't know if that right is needed, which is a pretty extreme point. And I also think that it's important to agree in different aspects. I think that I would immediately bring up the point that gun violence is inherently something that affects every single high schooler's life and every single person's life in the most minute ways and sometimes horrifically in major ways. I think that when you agree with someone and bring up different points, you can see a connection between the two people in a way that can bring people together, even if they have different ideas. So what have you lived through that's gotten you to your point of view about guns? What has gotten you on this path involvement-wise? Is this an attitude that you just share from your parents? A lot of people who are very concerned about limitations on guns often inherit that from whatever group that they're part of. What did you inherit? I think that no one should be ashamed to say that they inherited their ideas, obviously, I'll say that first. I think I inherited a lot of my political and social ideas from the Quaker community and from the community that my parents are a part of. And I think that the majority of my ideas on gun control stem from conversations that my parents had with me when I was younger and nowadays, too. But I think that my ideas aren't just from the community that I'm from. I think that there's a deep-seated part of every person that knows what is right and what is wrong. And I think that most people know that violence is in and of itself something that is wrong. And I think that's a huge part of where my ideas develop from. I get my ideas, they stem from my parents, and I think that they're developed by that deep-seated belief. And how have you lived that out in terms of your own activism, your own involvements? I'm not, I'm not a political activist, I suppose I should say, in the most natural sense. I mostly see that play out through the way that I interact with my friends. I mean, just very recent, actually, in fact, there was a big conflict between my friends about just who they should go to prom with. And it was absolutely an arbitrary conversation, but it, it really got heated. And I think that a large part of how I play out my ideas about conflict resolution and conflict in and of itself can be shown just in how that situation unfolded, which is that I became the intermediary and I was a way to communicate between two sides of 
an argument. I think conflict resolution is a talent that one builds. How have you learned conflict resolution? I feel like a broken record. I <laughs> I learned it from the Quaker community, the community that I grew up in. And one of the most detrimental things to conflict resolution is fear. The fear that your voice won't be heard, the fear that your voice won't be valued, that it won't be validated. And those ideas came from the way that I learned conflict resolution, which is through, for example, committees, clearness committees in Quakerism is just one of many ways that conflict resolution plays out in Quakerism. But those are based in a mutual understanding and mutual respect and a mutual validation of one's ideas, even if they conflict with another. In the Young Friends community, which is a high school group, there's been a, a large amount of workshops about conflict resolution, about political conflict resolution, and that's the majority of the place that I gained those skills from. I think you were also involved in debate club, at least in middle school. Did that give you skills that are valuable in terms of conflict resolution as well? Yeah, I think that a large part of conflict resolution is presenting information so that you're not just spraying out uh, emotions that can be detrimental to how people view and respect each other. Uh, a big part of how Debate Club was run in middle school was research and research and research and understanding of both sides. And when you understand both sides from a factual standpoint, you can really sympathize with the other side even if you don't agree with them. I was looking at the website for Athelton High School in Columbia, Maryland, where you are, Thomas, and I was noticing the fight song, and I, I was just trying to s figure out what kind of atmosphere you're working in. The fight song includes a line that struck me as uh, better than the average of what I expect from a high school. Two of the lines are, pick up the pace and win with grace. The idea of grace in the mix, as opposed to blood and gore and you know, veins in our teeth, that strikes me as a different tone. Is that truly the different tone in the high school where you're attending? Those lyrics were written, actually, when I was a sophomore. There's no way that that could have been written without a community that supports those concepts, because it was written by a community, a group of people, not just one person. And I think that it really does reflect the school's wider beliefs about how conflict, which is what sports is, I guess, a fun version of conflict. I think that really reflects how our school sees conflict in general. There are fights in the sports games just like any other school, but I think that there's a respect in how Appleton High School plays sports, and I think that there's the respect in how they treat the other sports teams. That's good to hear that it works that way. Again, the reason I have you here today, and folks, we are speaking with Thomas Finnegar, the reason I have you here is because of your involvement with the March for Our Lives activism. So you were in Washington, D.C. for that. You also, last August, did a senator visit with the Friends Committee on National Legislation. What were you trying to do there? What kind of results did you get out of that? It was a small group of people, Quakers, obviously. I believe that it was about the Dreamers Act and that we were communicating with the senators about our position, the Quakers' position on the Dreamers Act and how it affects Quakers and the constituents of the senators that we visited directly. I believe we visited mostly New England senators. We didn't actually get a chance to meet directly any senators because they were on a break period. But we did get to drop off some information with the clerks up front and we got to communicate our concepts and our ideas to the group that supports the senator. 
So you've built skills, both in terms of conflict resolution, your debate, all your drama work. Do you see a place for you in politics, or is this still kind of anathema, non-interest to you? Some people say that a person who's in political office is always acting. <laughs> well, I can see that, and I can agree, honestly. I don't see a position in my life where I would go into what is directly politics, or the government, that is. But I do think that a huge part of my life might be political commentary. I think entertainment is a huge part of what drives me, and I think that would be what drives that political commentary that I do. And so I guess in that light, you could say I'd be interested in politics, but I'd say that I would not be joining the government, I think. I don't think I'd be very good at it, I should say. Some people say that high schoolers are too ill-experienced, I guess, to be advocating for policy. What's your perspective on that? Experience comes with age. I'll agree with that any day. But I don't think high schoolers are ill-experienced. I think they're differently experienced. And sure, we might have less time under our... But we experience the world in a different way than anyone else does. We see the world in a different way than anyone else does because we can communicate in different ways. In fact, we have to communicate in different ways. That's kind of something that goes with our age group. And I think that anyone who thinks that high schoolers don't have enough experience to have political commentary and to have social commentary doesn't understand what it means to be a high schooler. I think in high school, you're developing those concepts. I think that's the first time in your life when you're really getting a stance. An important part of who everyone is in high school is how they see the world. And everyone has a different way of seeing the world, of course, but I would say that the high schoolers see the world more clearly, in fact, than adults sometimes. I don't think that high schoolers are ill-experienced. I think that they're differently experienced. Well, I'm really grateful to think of you leading the way for the next generation. Your involvement, both in what you've done in your own high school and with Friends Committee on National Legislation, March for Our Lives, bodes well for our future. I'm hoping that you're an opinion leader within your age group, because if so, our future is looking very, very bright. And I want to thank you for being part of the March for Our Lives and for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate you saying that. It was a wonderful experience, and this was a wonderful experience. Thank you. And again, folks, we've been speaking with Thomas Finneker. He is just finishing as a senior at Athleton High School in Columbia, Maryland. He was part of the March for Our Lives back on March 24th. Thanks again, Thomas. Thank you. Wow, what great energy and effort by all of today's three guests, Thomas, Zariah, and Bonnie, not to mention Myron, Donna, and Christine, who we talked with two weeks ago, all on NordenSpiritRadio.org. Inspirations for us all. Remember to check out our listener survey on the website, and we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song. 